Houston, Texas. It was 1979 and Houston's legendary oil boom was in full swing. Thousands of people fleeing crumbling Rust Belt economies were pouring into the Bayou City. Many of these new Houstonians flocked to hundreds of apartment complexes that catered to a younger crowd. But there was a dark side to those happy days. A killer was stalking and murdering young women and men, sexually assaulting some of them and violently slashing their throats. And in two shocking murders, the killer made off with the victim's head. Both are still missing. Today, more than three decades later, the status of five murder cases that took place within those two months of one another remains virtually the same as in 1979. There are no suspects, no fingerprints or forensic evidence to help develop a suspect. And the most rudimentary of theories. The questions remain, was there a cold-blooded serial killer with a compulsion to collect human heads at work in Houston? And is the killer still out there? In this episode, we will be joined by Keith Ashby, a Houston native who will tell us some of This story is only a Texan can. If you're new here, I'm Anthony Rossetti, your host of All Things Strange and Unexplained. And this is episode 19 of Not Another Horror Podcast. July 27, 1979. It's early morning in Houston, Texas. The sun rose less than an hour ago as Bob Smith is on his way to the Orchard Apartments in southwest Houston in the Gulfton area. These apartments, they're right in the middle of civilization, surrounded by Thousands upon thousands of people in a big city in America. These apartments, they're just a seven-minute drive from the Galleria in Uptown. It's 94% humidity outside as Bob pulls into the parking lot at the Orchard Apartments. It's 7.30 in the morning. It's a balmy 76 degrees, and it's going to be a hot one today with a high of 90 Smith patiently waits in the parking lot. He's here to pick up his co-worker, Elise Elaine Rankin. She's a 33-year-old secretary at an engineering firm. Her car was in the shop for repairs, so Smith, he agreed to pick her up. After some time, Smith found himself waiting in the car, wondering, where's Elise? Eventually, he got impatient. Smith made his way 
to her apartment. She lived on the ground floor. As he approached the front door, he noticed that it was open, which seemed strange to him at the time. He thought maybe, maybe she was on the way to get something. She forgot on the way to the car. He enters the room, calling out to her. Elise, are you ready? He looks around and starts to realize that something isn't quite right. He continues his search for the apartment. At some point, he notices there's a trail on the floor. It appears to be blood. And it leads to the bedroom door. He makes his way into the bedroom. I can only imagine the anticipation of the fear of what may be on the other side of this door. As he opens the door, he sees Elise's naked body laying on the bed. Her legs are tied together by her feet. And one of her arms is restrained. She's laying in a pool of her own blood. As he approaches her body to inspect for signs of life, he removes the pillow from atop what he at least thought was her head, only to discover that all that remained was a nub that was viciously eradicated of her head with the use of a knife out of her own kitchen. As Smith gets his bearings, he realizes that there's a pool of blood on the floor. And not only is that blood there, it goes all the way out through the apartment, out the front door, and out into the parking lot. Police believe he took her head out uncovered into the open, into the middle of this vast city, surrounded by all of these people, put it in his car, and drove away. Police conducted a pop, an autopsy on Elise's body. They discovered that she had been sexually assaulted. They also determined that her cause of death was not through the stabbings with the knife, or the decapitation, but from asphyxiation. Five years later, Smith was interviewed by the Houston Post. He compared the terror he felt to discovering his co-worker's headless torso to being slugged in the stomach. He said, I looked over my shoulder and had that feeling that if the person who did this was still around, he's going to get me. After this gruesome murder, the residents at Orchard Apartments were on high alert. Among those is Mary Michael Calcutta. She became acutely aware of how at risk she was in her home. Her neighbor on the ground floor, just two floors below her, had been gruesomely murdered in her own home. She decided to stay with her friends for some time. Eventually, 
she decided she must return home. After leaving her friends, she informed them that she would be barricading the front door with a bookcase and she wouldn't answer the door for anyone she didn't know. August 10th, 1979. Today would prove to be a particularly gruesome day in the city. Today's high is in the 90s, and it's about 90% humidity. A very humid day here in Houston, but typical for this time of year. Again, we find ourselves at the Orchard Apartments. We find ourselves on the third floor. One of Calcutta's friends has arrived to visit her. When he arrived, I'm certain he was not ready for the gruesome scene he had stumbled upon. He made his way into the apartment where there was clearly a struggle. There was blood everywhere. He found his way to the bathroom where he discovered his friend stabbed dozens of times in the bathtub with her throat slit. It's terrifying to think that both of these women were murdered with knives from their own kitchens in their own home. Mary Calcutta died harder than any murdered woman I've ever worked. She fought her killer from the front door until she couldn't fight him anymore, recalled Jim Benford, a retired HPD homicide investigator. The murderer stabbed her with such force that it went all the way through her and bent the blade of the knife. Calcutta, a 27-year-old Pittsburgh native, aggressively fought her murderer for her life only to be nearly decapitated with her own knife. After her autopsy, we discover she has also been sexually assaulted, just like Rankin. Houston police believe both murders were committed by the same person. Detective Benford also believe the killer had more than two victims. Later on that day, an exterminator enters the townhouse of 26-year-old Doris Lynn Threadgill. To his horror, he discovers a badly mutilated body. It's Doris. The investigators say her throat was slashed so deeply her head was nearly removed from her body. In 1980, Calcutta's family offered a $10,000 reward for information leading to the killer's arrest. They said, We're trying to renew the investigation again, and we're trying to find closure, said Sister Margaret Ann Calcutta, a nun who is one of the slain woman's five siblings. It's something our family has lived with all these years, and it has really been a heartache for us. It's terrifying to think that the killer is still out there. Or killers. It's terrifying to think that these people shared walls with neighbors who had to have heard something. And 
I guess, did not call the police. You would think that all of this commotion of someone being brutally murdered above you or beside you would have prompted you to take some sort of action to investigate, to see if your neighbor is okay. What also disturbs me about this whole situation is that Calcutta was allegedly taking all of these precautions to keep herself safe, yet there's no mention of a bookcase blocking the front door. And to my knowledge, there is no mention of forced entry into this unit. Maybe she knew the person who murdered her. Maybe she wasn't the only one who knew the person who murdered her. October 3rd, 1979. While police were looking to solve these three killings, another headless victim was found. Residents around Freed Park in northwest Houston, five blocks from Threadgill's home, were alarmed by a woman's scream and gunshots that rang out late that night. Houston Park police came to the house where a neighbor saw a young woman being dragged by her hair by a man in a cap. The two struggled on the front porch of a home across the street. The residents of that house heard gunshots and a girl screaming, Help! Don't do this to me, according to published reports. Park police officers who responded that night told residents no blood was found on the porch and said they had mistaken firecrackers for gunshots. But the next morning, Houston police found blood on the porch and they later found the body of Joan Huffman, 16. Lang shot to death in Watunga Park, nearly four miles away. Police believe Huffman was the girl heard screaming around the same time that day. Houston police were called to a used car lot in the 4200 block of Magnum, where the sales manager found a blood-smeared white Dodge inside the trunk. Officers discovered the headless body of Robert Spanchenberger, 18, who had been dating Huffman. Today, the police aren't entirely convinced that all five murders are connected. They believe that Elaine and Mary Michael were killed by the same person, but they think that Joan and Robert were murdered by someone else. They aren't sure if one of those killers were responsible for the murder of Doris Lynn Threadgill or if there was a third killer. Other people think that the barbarity of the crimes indicates that there was only one killer. They point out that in the two sets of murders, the victims' heads were removed and they have never been found. That is pretty unusual. What are the odds that two different killers who collected heads were operating within several miles of each other at the same time? Unfortunately, the cases have more questions than answers. For example, why did the killer take the heads? What did he do with them to this day? They have never been found. The murders were especially brutal. Had they taken place in a horror movie? they would have been considered excessive. 
What motivated him or them to commit such gruesome murders? Could someone or several people have committed these horrific murders and gone back to their normal day-to-day -day lives? Did they move away from Houston and commit similar crimes? Were they arrested for a different crime? And they stopped killing because they were in prison? Unfortunately, we may never know the answers to these questions, and since it's been more than 40 years since the murders, well, it's entirely possible we may never know who caused the carnage in Houston in the summer and fall of 1979. Well, that's all I have for you today, and I would like to thank Keith Ashby for joining us on this episode. As always, you know the drill. If you like the show, you can rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. And until next week, stay safe, stay sane. And if you know someone with some real human skulls in their living room, call the police. <laughs>